The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hello, Zach. Hello, Jack. How are you doing on this fine day? I'm all right. Still recovering from a pretty nasty cold uh, that you kind of witnessed the beginning of. I was in New York a couple of weeks back, but happy to be podcasting from the comfort of my my relatively warm home. Exciting. What's even more exciting, perhaps, is our fantastic guest today. Uh, do you care to introduce him? I do. So today we have on a mutual friend of ours, someone who we met kind of through our poker business. He is a top quality financial journalist and recently got married. Alex Rosenberg. Mr. Alex Rosenberg. <laughs> Mr. Alex Rosenberg. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Jack. And, and thanks to the listeners for getting through that disclaimer at the beginning. So really excited to be here. <laughs> that's what they say when you get married, right? They call you Mr. whatever it is. Yeah, that's the thing. Mr. Rosenberg. So Alex, when, when we spoke about a week ago, we were discussing kind of how like the broader crypto world, including crypto assets, store values, cryptocurrencies, would be different from a fiat-centric world. And this has implications for kind of inflation, deflation. What would a deflationary world look like? What would a world with central banking, with algorithmic central banking, without central banking? So I kind of wanted to just explore with you and, 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 and hear what you think, how you think kind of a, a crypto world would be different from the kind of world we have today from a, the perspective of, of money. Yeah, my, my pleasure. So we can get into to central banks because they play a, a special role. Um, so we, we can get more into that later in specifics. I think that just the, the main thing I was interested in highlighting for folks is that inflation is a very dirty word. I'll just start with that. Like there's a kind of perception of, you know, good people keep save their money and inflation robs these people of their, their hard-earned value, that they work for 40 years, they retire, and then inflation happens, and, and they lose their money. And so the fact that Bitcoin doesn't have inflation, and, and we, we should naturally—it's it, had some, uh, some inflation recently, but we should naturally expect that a 
a Bitcoin-centric world would be a deflationary one, right? Because only a certain number of Bitcoin are ever mined. After that, there's there's no more no more mining, and and you know there's more goods and services in the world. So the 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 value of every good and service should fall in relation to Bitcoin, basically as Bitcoin's price appreciates in, in relation to goods and services. That's sort of the investment case, and and that's and, and that's seen as a big benefit to a Bitcoin-centric world as opposed to maybe a U.S. dollar-centric world where more dollars are, are printed every day, it, literally and, and, and figuratively. So my main concern about that, and, and I'm not – I don't really want to weigh in on whether or not that will happen. Um, we can get into that, but it's just that, – that's just pure speculation. My main concern is that such a world would be really, really damaging for people who – who are poor, who even who are middle class, and basically it would benefit people who own Bitcoin, i.e., wealthy people with with money to spare, you know, to to the exclusion of everything else in the world. So if you think about, it, let's say every global transaction happens in Bitcoin, that's massively to the benefit of the people who already own Bitcoin, and, and more than half the Bitcoin that will ever exist is already owned. So those people are going to massively benefit, while the rest of the world would be forced to haggle. With these, this small group of wealthy people, for the right to to basically use money. So, so that's kind of the main point I want to to start with of the the horrible future of a Bitcoin driven world from the perspective of someone who's not already rich. Could you elaborate on that? Because it's not obvious to me why that would be the case. Sure. So let's say uh, let, let let's let's pretend. Instead of Bitcoin, let's let's pretend that 1973 stamps are going to be the asset that all the world's transactions are done in, and that all the world's wealth will be held in. Okay, so you know after 1973, obviously no more 1973 stamps can cre- be created. So what would what would such a world look like? It would anyone who currently owns 1973 stamps would probably see the value appreciate. You know, the the marginal good and service would have to be don't, that valued basically in 1973 stamps. So if I wanted to – if I was working and I wanted to buy a piano lesson for my kid, I don't know. It's just a weird example I came up with. But if I wanted to buy a piano lesson, I'd have to get my hands on some 1973 stamps. So I'd have to buy them from someone who happens to have 1973 stamps already. So it's basically, you know, those collectors will get rich. But everyone else will will be forced to kind of deal with the scraps. Because so 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 let's say all the value of the world's uh, activity at the present moment let's, uh, is is a thousand dollars. Obviously, it's it's uh, a little more than that. But let's just say it's a thousand dollars. So if all the world's activity is going to be valued in Bitcoin, then you know Bitcoin will will capture a hundred percent of that thousand dollars, and the total value of Bitcoin will be a thousand dollars. But that appreciation will come on the backs of everyone else who doesn't hold Bitcoin and, and is holding their wealth in something else, or even just doesn't have wealth. It, 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 is this starting to, to? Is my point starting to come across? So, I'm I'm hearing what you're saying. I my hunch is that I strongly disagree. But let me try and let me try and sort of bridge the gap a little bit, or see if I'm understanding. So, I definitely agree with the notion that there will be. Okay, if we're transitioning to a world where Bitcoin is the exclusive transactional currency, which, you know, I, I do think it's worth mentioning that 
part of what I see is like the crypto and Bitcoin movement is more of a competition among currencies. And so I think if in a world where Bitcoin became dominant, I feel that that would be an indication that Bitcoin was working well for most people. We can debate that point, but I think it's worth mentioning. But regardless, let's just, uh, let's just fast forward to Bitcoin is the dominant currency in the world. Now, that transition is likely to reward early adopters who have benefited from the appreciation of Bitcoin and have not been hurt by the depreciation of other currencies relative to Bitcoin. So certainly there would be a point where holders of Bitcoin were vastly, or early holders of Bitcoin were vastly wealthy compared to the masses. And there, there might be consequences to that, which are undesirable. What I would argue with in terms of going forward past that point, I don't think that there'd be any reason to think that the poor um, or the people who were without Bitcoin in the short term would be extremely hurt by this after that point. If holders of Bitcoin, like, if, okay, so we've already presumed that Bitcoin is the method of transaction for you know all sort of economic activity. And so I don't, people would still have jobs. Um, they would still want to buy things. They would still want to pay people to do things. And so you would have Bitcoin be reintroduced gradually into normal people who are just doing work. And if there was a greater incentive to hold relative to a inflationary currency like the dollar, that might curb consumption to a degree. And I think that if you have sort of a Keynesian worldview, you might see that curbing of consumption is a bad thing. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. But yeah, I'm not sure why there wouldn't be just sort of a gradual reintroduction of Bitcoin into, you know, sort of everyone's wallets because that's the dominant transactional currency. Sure. So I, I just want to add one kind of um, asterisk to what I said before, which is that, you know, it, just for simplicity, I assume that the world transactions denominated in Bitcoin went from 0% to, which is effectively is now, to 100%. Um, the same phenomenon happened if, it's, if it goes to you know 5% or to 15% or to 50%, just, just to a less extreme degree. In terms of why the poor would be hurt after that transition, it, it's actually closely connected. It, it, it has to do with the difference between an inflationary environment and a deflationary environment. So let, let's say you know, person X, let, let's call him Zach Resnick, happened to be an early adopter in Bitcoin. Now, as Bitcoin's value continued to rise versus the value of goods and services in the real world, Zach doesn't really have a powerful incentive to spend his Bitcoin. In fact, he has a very powerful incentive to just continue to uh, hodl his Bitcoin until, you know, at some undetermined point in the future. And that's that's the classic mark. So so it's not like it would be reintroduced, you know, all at, all at once. First of all, but that kind of hodling is the classic mark of a deflationary environment where people just just hoard their uh, money because it's worth more in terms of goods and services, it's worth more in the future than in the past. So there's not re- you don't really have an incentive to spend. So that disincentive to spend, first of all, means that that currency won't really be reintroduced and that the the wealthy will continue to get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier every year. It's not just like a one-time boon to the early uh, Bitcoin buyer. But but even even aside that, even even let's say, you know, that it wasn't some collectible like Bitcoin, I'm sorry to call it a collectible, but some collectible like Bitcoin that that 
took over the world in terms of transactions. Even in an environment in which the U.S. dollar deflated every year is good for people who have money now and bad for people who are making money later, both because of the way loans work. So so deflation means that people who take out loans, you know, so, so, so users of capital basically have to pay more and more to holders of capital, right? Because you, you borrowed $100, you had to pay back $110. Now that $110 is really worth more like $130, you know, you, you, you lost out. So that's just the loan thing real quick. But even besides that, since, since the wealthy can, can hoard money, they get rich just by being rich. And so the returns to capital versus the returns to labor are much higher. Like that, that ratio of capital to labor is much higher in a deflationary environment than an inflationary environment. So that, that's, that's sort of why my concern isn't just about a one-time boon. It's actually about the, a deflationary world run by Bitcoin as opposed to an inflationary world run by an asset like the US dollar. Mm-hmm. I think there's sort of a, a misconception here that I, I see among people who have a negative view of deflationary currencies. And I think what is essentially happening is that we're viewing a change in sort of the marginal cost of holding become a marginal benefit of holding as this sort of premonition that very little Bitcoin will be spent. And I think that this is not true. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll make my point like this. So right now, there is a cost to holding cash, and that cost is inflation. And so one might think like, okay, since there's a cost to holding cash, everyone is just going to spend all their cash right away. And we know that this doesn't happen. I mean, I do this, but most people don't do that. Um, that's a joke, by the way. <laughs> people mute their microphones on the, the thing, and it makes me feel self-conscious. Anyway, hopefully I got some laughs at home. I think by the same, in the same way, even though there's a marginal benefit to holding a deflationary currency, there's still going to be a ton of times where your marginal benefit of trading that currency for some good is positive. And so I don't, I think it's maybe overstated, like the degree to which inflation is a driver of consumption and to which deflation would be a driver to savings. Like if we're talking on like a similar margin of deflation relative inflation to inflation, like we're seeing like, you know, around 2% inflation a year um, in the US. And so imagine if we saw 2% deflation in Bitcoin, there would still be, you know, I think consumption levels would be similar. It's just there would be some marginal purchases where now all of a sudden the, the fact that you're missing out on some appreciation relative to, you know, various commodities during that time period, you would curb your consumption marginally. No, I, 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 I agree with you if it's two, negative 2% versus positive 2%, because 2% is not a very powerful driver. Like the reason people buy things, the reason people invest isn't to avoid the 2% inflation. Yes, like on, on the margins, uh, you know, like I just looked at all, all my portfolio and like my investment goals for the next whatever 50, 60 years. And yes, the fact that inflation is likely to occur over that time, it marginally made me want to buy stocks. But I agree that if there was 2% deflation, that, that that world would not be very different from a 2% inflation world. The problem is that the and, – and this kind of brings me on to one of my biggest, frankly, pet peeves of uh, uh, about things that crypto advocates say. The problem is that 
There's no way to control the extent of deflation in a Bitcoin-driven world. Uh, you know, it, deflation will probably roughly equal the pace of economic growth if, if you think there's a stable currency and as the economy grows, you know, it, it, any marginal gains in, in global GDP should uh, lead to decreases in the value of the goods and services compared to Bitcoin. But but that being because right because all the goods and services are in Bitcoin, so yeah, we'll exactly. appreciate by the amount of all the yeah, but. But the problem is that, well, let's say we have a period of rapid growth, which that will lead to rapid deflation, probably to a deflationary spiral where as deflation increases and decreases, people, you know, all of a sudden, you're not talking about 2%, you're talking about 5%, you're talking about 10%. At that point, it really does change consumption decisions. And without a central bank or any sort of centralized monetary policy, there's nothing to prevent that from happening. And, And basically... You know, th- things could just become immeasurably worse with with really no way for the public to stop it from getting worse, which is the, the goal of a central bank is to stop the money supply from making life worse for, for you know, millions of people. Without, without such a measure, you can't say it's going to be only 2% deflation per year. You, you can't possibly know because there's no checks and balances on it. Okay. <laughs> so I think we're, we're sort of in, in Zach – Maybe before I go down this path, um, is there anything you want to add? I, I, I want to hear you go down the path a little bit before I, I interject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just, we're coming up, I think maybe on an impasse, just based on just like how we see, how we view um, the role of markets versus the role of government. Um, and what we see as, the benefit of government action versus the benefits of um, allowing markets to function uh, freely, you know, without any sort of coercive violence influencing them. And so let me let me first point out that you know obviously if if someone has absolutely zero wealth and we're in a deflationary spiral, like a deflationary spiral sounds really bad, but really what it means is that like. Anyone who has any Bitcoin is the purchasing power of that Bitcoin is in- increasing rapidly. Like we're used to inflationary spirals sounding really bad, and that's because most people keep their wealth in currencies, and in an inflationary spiral, you know their their wealth has sort of disappeared. In this situation, anyone who has any Bitcoin is going to see, you know, their purchasing power increase rapidly. Now, people who don't—I mean, that's that—that's a little disingenuous, though, because I don't think the so. more Bitcoin, the more Bitcoin you have, the more your purchasing power is going to increase. So, people who have like one Bitcoin versus people with a million Bitcoin—it's a million times better to have a million Bitcoin. So, so again, the wealthy—it it, it was but they were, directly they were already, the wealthier you are, the more you'll benefit. They were already a million times better off. It's it's proportional, you know. But 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 they but they do 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 better. Like it, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Well, no, no, no. I don't. I don't think that's true. The poor and the rich get richer at the same rate. Yeah, it's it's not like Alex, like the the rich are getting richer. Let's say someone with a million Bitcoin, if there's a deflationary spiral of like twenty percent annually for a couple mm-hmm. of years, a lot of growth. It's not like that. It's greater than twenty percent for the rich and less than twenty percent for laborers. Well, it, it's it's kind of equal equal throughout. And I would actually argue it in in many ways. It's it's more benefit. It's more beneficial to to those with less wealth, 
than, than to those with wealth. Right, but compare some, you know, two people with living expenses of one Bitcoin a year. One of them makes 10 Bitcoin a year. The other makes two Bitcoin a year. So the other, and, and so, so now effectively that, that nine Bitcoin is worth 18 Bitcoin, whereas the one Bitcoin that they have saved is worth two Bitcoin. So, so. And, and the productivity is, the productivity is increased. And so everything they have to buy is cheaper and they have more money. Right. But so, so like having any money is, is good, but the person who is able to save more is becoming wealthier in proportion to how much, uh, and to their living expenses more than the person who only has a bit saved. So I'll, 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 we can, we can let that pass for now. Yeah. I guess what I was going to say about like, if I viewed the fed as a stabilizing force, or if I thought that there was some sort of like human organization that could analyze a system as complex as the global economy and make all the right tweaks um, in a totally, you know, in a way that was uninfluenced by like the sort of greed of people who can influence that organization, then sure, I'd give it to you that maybe like if there was a Bitcoin fed that was totally benevolent and omnipotent, that that would be better than the alternative. But I guess I see the role of the Fed today as extremely destructive. And I see the role of inflation as an additional tax on, you know, especially, you know, a tax that I think disproportionately hurts the poor and middle class um, and also funds what I see as a government that is doing a lot more harm than good in the world. And I, I think that's probably a worldview that, is pretty dissonant with your own based on what you're saying. Yeah, because because to me, you know, f- first of all, we have far fewer small economic crises and, and stock market crashes post-Fed than we did pre-Fed. But, and, and, and I also, but more generally, I guess, it's not really about the Fed as an organization. I, I happen to think they're doing a pretty good job. I think that if you, you know, it, impossible to do, but if you compared how the the financial crisis, how, how the recovery from the financial crisis would have transpired without a Fed versus with the Fed. I, you know, I think it's, I, I think at least that it's clear the Fed did, did an incredible job in saving the global economy. You know, I understand that people have a different perspective and they were just kicking the can down the road and, and the U.S. is too much debt. So I, I, I just want to leave aside like the specific policies because what the Fed does and what any central bank does in, in a non-authoritarian regime is enact the will of the people. I mean, if, if, and, and say it again, the, Sorry, the Fed, I just missed that. It, it, what, what the, what the Fed does is enact the will of the people is, you know, if everyone in the world, if everyone in the U S if all voters woke up uh, tomorrow and said, Oh my God, why do we have a 2% inflation target? We should have a 2% deflation target. And that was like the number one issue everyone voted on, and all politicians were motivated to make that change because that's how everyone was voting. We would have a two percent deflation target within a year, because the Fed is you know it's not some secret shadowy organization. They're accountable to Congress. They get their mandate from Congress. You know the people are appointed by the president and and uh, approved by Congress. And so I, I, I guess even setting aside the policies of the Fed, I just think it's really important that the people have a say in like their own monetary system Hmm. because i believe in democracy jack (laughs) well i don't but that's a different thing okay 
Yeah, I mean, I just don't really know. I don't know exactly what to say. I just have an extraordinarily different view of the Fed and who they're accountable to and who they're serving. Um, I agree. I agree that, like, in a democracy, if you know, changing Fed policy became the number one issue, then clearly politicians, if they wanted to preserve their power, would have to bend to that will. But I see that as extremely unlikely, and I see a lot of time and energy being spent into diverting the attention of voters from things like that, and also a, you know, extreme lack of will to educate the people properly enough to even maybe consider that and understand why, you know, <laughs> why they have less purchasing power each year from the next, if they're even thinking in those terms. Right. It, it, it's interesting because we disagree about everything. We actually disagree about the pro- proper monetary policy, the 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 like like the proper broader conceptions of monetary policy, the specific policies enacted by the Fed, and then like the overall existence of the Fed. I, can, I will say that, yeah. And I can also send you some information about like the bank panics from the 19th century. And mm-hmm. like I think that that narrative is a pretty flawed one. It's something that I've looked into and I don't think I can speak on extremely well right now, but I'd be happy to post something about it in the show notes and also send it your way. I to try and summarize essentially like there's more to it than this, but those panics were very short lived where in a period where fed intervention became prevalent, we saw instead of panics, like depressions and recessions. Right. right. But yeah. And, and, and I understand the point, but I, I would direct you to actually what happened, what the British central bank did to try to preserve the gold standard, which is in, in some ways similar to the, the better, the better analogy to, a world dominated by Bitcoin is, you know, th- this one currency basically has a stable value, and and it basically they, they ended up having to crash the economy and cause massive unemployment in order to uh, to preserve the gold standard. But but I I just, I just want to get back to here's what I'm wondering: even if I shared your view about the Fed being beholden to outside interests, I guess I would try to I would make my cause, you know changing the Fed and, and either creating a new central bank that was more responsive to the American public or, you know, or, or, or reforming, rather than embarking on a whole new system with controls, with, with basically no controls, um, so that no one is at the helm. Because it, it seems that the, you know, I, I'd prefer at least some input into the monetary system than none, which is what we get with Bitcoin. Was that you want to jump in here? Yeah, I was just about to. So, so there's just different types of input. You know, there's kind of like the centralized input of like a central bank, and then there's the input by people freely, you know, choosing to buy and sell things. So right now we have two different mechanisms for determining the rate of inflation, or I guess theoretically deflation, which is what will happen kind of naturally in the economy and. You know, of course, we haven't really had anything close to a free market outside, I think, like crypto assets. You know, you, you can't really meaningfully divorce like markets and economies from the actions of governments that have, you know, in, enabled markets and protected rights. And, you know, I, I, I like and very much for markets becoming like more free and more organically reflecting, uh, the organic supply and demand of its participants, but just kind of want to set the stage. That I, I don't think we, we have like an example we can look at where you have markets that are meaningfully di- divorced from like governments in any sense. But with that in mind, right now you have what kind of markets that aren't 
particularly free, their input in terms of what the natural inflation or deflation would be. And then you have the monetary policy of the, the Federal Reserve. And you have a similar system in, you know, most, most other countries. So what we're proposing is not that there wouldn't be any kind of collective input on what the monetary policy is. It's just that there's, that's enacted through individuals and individuals that decide to band together and organizations to buy, sell, loan, and save versus a central bank. But, but that's, but that's the difference between plutocracy and democracy because th- th- that's a system in which the, per- the person with the most money has the most trading power and can influence the markets the most, which makes sense because, as I said, a, a Bitcoin-run world will massively benefit the rich. So it makes sense that, that wealthy people would want a plutocracy. I just don't think it'd be good. Okay, so here's basically what I think. I have no big issue with the U.S. dollar. I would just prefer a world where I had more options. Um, I think that we're seeing a lot of options emerge in crypto. If you don't trust Bitcoin, you don't have to use it. There might be crypto options that you prefer that have a more dedicated sort of central bank entity. And basically, my feeling is that anyone should be able to use and hold whatever they want. There shouldn't be any laws that stop someone from holding an asset that they would like to hold um, from spending or transacting with the currency that they'd like to transact with. I have no problem with people continuing to use dollars. If I had the, the option, I would probably use more crypto solutions where possible. Um, right now, the infrastructure is not there, and I don't think you know government is particularly helpful in allowing that infrastructure to come to be. But I think what's most important is that I think most sort of crypto people would agree with me that they don't want... Maybe they want to see the U.S. dollar fail, but they don't want to like make it illegal for anyone to use dollars. I think it's much more likely that you would see governments say, okay, Bitcoin is now illegal to transact with, or maybe not Bitcoin, but Monero is now illegal to transact with. And we can argue whether the possibility of tax evasion is worth restricting people's rights. Um, I would say no. But I think, essentially, I would like to see the market decide what currencies they want to use. And I think that most likely we would see... In that world, a lot of different options, and we would see ways for these to exchange more readily, and and that's the kind of world I would like to see. We kind of know where we stand. I'd be happy to post the article or anything that you have to send about your view of the Fed. I'll probably recommend some things um, for people who haven't thought that much about the role of the Fed in the economy and who are maybe confused of whether the Fed is you know, their enemies sort of stealing from them and paying for various wars, or whether it's a benevolent force that's, you know, protecting them from panics and such. But, but, but even, but even if it's not benevolent, like we, you, I mean, you, you really don't want the public to have any say in uh, like what interest rates are or what inflation looks like or, or, you know, even what finance, if we save financial institutions from collapse. Well, well Alex, let me, let me ask right now, do you feel like those without serious serious wealth have meaningful input on these things. Well, that's tough. I don't know. If, I don't know that I'd say they have serious input. I, I mean, I, I think I, I, you know, I. I, th- I don't even think serious is on the table. I mean, I just mean anything approaching meaningful. Like w- w- when I look at you know the the actions of the Federal Reserve, at least I haven't really studied any central bank to the degree I have the U.S. Federal Reserve. I see a central bank that takes the action to protect the interests of 
largely speaking, banks and financial institutions. No, I, I, so I'm going to be a bit hypocritical now because I don't necessarily think that pe- that that direct democracy for central banks is like a really good option. I think that people are pretty that since people don't really know anything about uh, about economics and central banking, like they shouldn't necessarily uh, you know make specific you know should we raise or cut interest rates in June kind of decisions. I genuinely think, though, genuinely think that the leadership of the Federal Reserve does have like the interest, like some some sort of utilitarian interests in uh, the overall well-being of Americans as a group. So I, I and, and I, I, I deeply think that and I think that's kind of the way it, it should be. Now, that's what I'm saying. If you don't think that, then like we should have a different chair of the Federal Reserve. But I, I guess I, you know, maybe I'm more hopeful or more optimistic. But I think if you look at the actions of the Federal Reserve, like they sort of speak to a an interest in, in the welfare of the American people. Well, okay, let me ask let me ask you something sort of along the lines of the question should we be setting interest rates at all? Would you agree with the statement that the interest rate is the price of money? Yes. How do you feel about price floors or price ceilings in other parts of the economy? Like, what would you think of the the government said that we now have a price ceiling on milk. I think, well, I, ironically, we've we've had a price floor on milk, which is really stupid. But no, I, I listen. I, I think it's good that we have a floor on wages. I think it's good we have a minimum wage, and I I think ceilings on on certain items. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I think I think it's I think it's appropriate if you know if the government truly has the welfare of the people in mind to have price floors and ceilings. So yeah, I I, I do believe in those. I appreciate your consistency. <laughs> um, okay. So, Alex, we uh, I think that was a really good discussion. And I want to probably turn to an area where maybe we have more alignment. Okay. Or at least a more, probably a less contentious area. How do you think crypto should fit into a modern portfolio? Uh, and we'll mention that you have, I don't know if it's still going on, but have produced what's called the Dumb Money Podcast, which is... I think a really great podcast going over sort of financial issues and especially for millennials, maybe a little bit, a little bit of advice in there, but this is something that you thought a lot about. Yeah. And it's really funny because, you know, I, a lot of people have asked a lot of, um, people have uh, over the years, financial novices have asked me over the years, Hey, should I buy some of this Bitcoin stuff? And I, I'm always rather skeptical of, of it. And I say, you know, if you really have oodles, noodles of money, I think of Bitcoin as a collectible. I think of Bitcoin as, you know, it's like buying an old car or a bottle of fancy wine or maybe with one of those 1973 stamps I was talking about where, you know, it it could serve a place in a portfolio and theoretically it should be uncorrelated. The funny thing is, though, and and I didn't really really plan this and this kind of snuck up on me, is last night in in a – what, what I hope will be a a New Year's Day tradition, my wife Michelle and I sat down and and went through – our finances, our financial goals, kind of did a whole investing policy statement and looked at our ideal portfolio allocation. And very sexy. Yeah, it was. I mean, married life is crazy, man. Uh, <laughs> but but it was it was very interesting because what we what what I came to was like you know I was like okay you know this percent stocks, this percent bonds, this percent cash. And I was like, you know, honestly, it probably makes sense to have one percent in Bitcoin, and I'd never really thought that before, but. Just as sort of a weird, you know, it would kind of, I would put it in the commodities section of the portfolio along with like 
you know, may, maybe a bit of gold, which I also hate. But, you know, I, I it was interesting because I kind of do think it could serve a role. You know, that said, in, in the short term, I, I went and looked at it. It, it serves as a what, what they would call a Texas hedge, which is a hedge that does the opposite. So on, on days when the S&P has fallen 2%, just for fun, I looked this up, over the past two years, on all the days when uh, the S&P 500 has fallen 2% or more, Bitcoin's average performance is to drop 1.8%, which makes sense because, it, like I said, it's a collectible. You know, fine wine prices rise with the market and fall with the market. In the long term, though, I think that if you want to commit 1% or 2% of your portfolio to Bitcoin, I think that's, I think that's totally reasonable and, and, and fine. But do, do you think it meaningfully serves as a hedge? Because it, it's sounding like you introduced you know, some data that would indicate otherwise. I'm torn. It's definitely not a hedge in the short term. That said, if we did have a true financial crisis, I think it would it would hedge your portfolio. I mean, it's generally pretty uncorrelated. And I think, you know, it, against some horrible financial crisis, I, I, and, you know, and, and think about it this way, most of your assets are denominated in U.S. dollars, uh, whether it's cash or stocks or bonds. So, I think that that it kind of like from a theoretical perspective, I think it does serve a long-term hedging function, even though I wouldn't, you know, expect it to rise on days when the stock market fell. You know, over the ten-year period, if you if you did like some kind of Monte Carlo simulation, you looked at all the paths the S and P five hundred would go on. I think that in a lot of them, where the S and P five hundred fell twenty percent or more over the next ten years, I think I think you'd see Bitcoin rise. So I'm kind of just like going off conjecture here because we don't have. We don't have a lot of data about this. Yeah, and Alex, this kind of goes to like you know a point we were talking about before in terms of making investment decisions and just you know how to use the valuable data of kind of past performance and how informative that should be. I, I think you know when you're making investing decisions, whether that's kind of your macro portfolio allocation or deciding individual investments, there's room for looking at the past, but there's I think also room for you know making thesis-driven bets about the future. And I, I would agree with you that in the short term, Bitcoin is unlikely to be a hedge. Well, we can't really know unless it were to be seriously tested with a, you know, I think financial crisis bigger than what we experienced in 07, 08. And I would actually say looking at the data, Bitcoin's actually fairly correlated to the market. It's not like exactly correlated, but on the whole, it's fairly correlated right now. And that's, I think, due to the fact that most people are, that are trading Bitcoin and that uh, provide the liquidity are looking at it as a speculative asset. And like all speculative assets, uh, they, you know, generally perform worse than like the S and P 500 in a market downturn. But if you look at it from its fundamentals, which is kind of where the thesis comes in and not just looking at the past data, then I, I think there's, you know, a strong argument that I think most of our listeners and yourself are familiar with for why it would be a, a really fantastic hedge against, you know, a, a whole variety of like financial crises, disasters, and even, you know, not necessarily a crisis, but just a long kind of increase in, let's say, inflation to the U.S. dollar, where instead of getting 2%, we're, you know, 4 or 5% for a few years. And I think there's a lot of scenarios in which Bitcoin performs uh, well, as a, well as a hedge independent of kind of like some type of disaster scenario. I mean, the the funny thing is that Bitcoin is so so volatile be, for 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 the reason that no one no one really like knows what it's worth, and everyone has a different valuation metric. So it's not like the S and P five hundred, where it's sort of like pinned around some kind of a 
you know, something between 14 and 20 times uh, uh, expected next year's earnings. There's like nothing like that for Bitcoin. And, and, and I, I know that, that you guys have methodology, which, which you know, it, by, by the way, I think is, is sound and it makes sense like in the scheme of things. But the fact that everyone has a different methodology, methodology means that it's just like random buying and selling. So, you know, I, I don't even know how it would perform in a, in a strongly inflationary environment, but I think it's worth... I think it's worth having some weird exotic stuff in your portfolio if you have like a very long time horizon and you're not like struggling to meet near-term investment goals. So, yeah, I mean, from, from that perspective, yeah, say lovey, why not? <laughs> Strong recommendation. Yeah, I would say if, if the government goes bankrupt, you're going to want to either have Bitcoin or guns. And in New York City, it's a lot more legal to hold Bitcoin. So you're you're not going to want to be around is the thing. It's like it it's almost one of, if the like that's the thing is that if the government goes bankrupt, it's like you don't even necessarily want to hedge that situation. I, I think when when I have conversations, Alex, with people that are you know not in the crypto world, not really familiar, uh, often from like let's say have a background in like uh, New York City finance. When I kind of bring up the thought of a hedge, the the response is often, "Oh, well, if it gets that bad, well, kind of who cares? You don't need to be around anyways." And and the the point I tried to make before is that, well, I think Bitcoin is by far the most valuable hedge in a scenario, and you know, it's kind of a, a real disaster scenario. I also think it's a very meaningful hedge in a lot of non-disaster scenarios, but just like the U.S. purchasing power steadily declining, or the U.S. slowly being unraveled as the world, you know, reserve currency for the yen or the won or something. I think there's there's a lot of scenarios in which, you know, a deflationary, decentralized, censorship resistant currency performs very well. Bernie twenty twenty, you know, you might gotta start preparing. <laughs> you, you know what's funny by the way about disaster about that that disaster argument is I used to be one of the ones who made that argument like, oh, you should just buy canned beans, you know. And then it, what finally occurred to me, someone schooled me on this, was like, no, you idiot. It's not now what happens during the disaster. It's if you make it through the disaster out the other side. Because, you know, it, it's possible to imagine the value – it's hard to imagine, but it's you, it's a non-zero chance that the value of all U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds goes to zero. And even if gold uh, or Bitcoin falls dramatically in this time as well, it will probably hold its value better like coming out the other side. So – you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm being too glib about, you know, if you think the world's going to end, maybe Bitcoin is is part of that that gold, canned beans, guns uh, portfolio. Well, 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 but you're you're kind of dismissing the the point that I was making there, Alex. Mm. Not really addressing it in terms of I'm not talking about those scenarios. I'm right, talking about sorry. the scenario in which the U.S. let's say the U.S. dollar slowly kind of unravels at the world's reserve currency. Yeah, or I, I, you know, we we dry up our oil and then you know the petrodollar is no longer kind mm-hmm. of the there's just a lot of scenarios in which the U.S. dollar gets a lot less strong, and that's that's what I'm speaking to more. Yeah, sorry. No, I I, I think that's kind of reasonable, but the the thing is I think there are much, much better hedges if, if you have kind of any idea of what the specifics would be of the situation. So you might be better off just buying Chinese yuan or, or even buying Chinese equities or, you know, or, or you might be better off buying gold or silver. That said, if you think... If you think that the world's going to get worse and you're not really sure how? Well, I'm not saying the world's necessarily going to get worse. I'm saying, you know, because we're probably broadcasting to a primarily American audience, it's just that, like, the value of your U.S. equities 
treasury bonds and potentially as well as, you know, real estate will not even necessarily go down, but just stop increasing at the rate that it's happened to for the last, you know, 85 years. Yeah, but I, I think so. I think a much better way to, to hedge against that scenario is to not have – you might be familiar with the term home country bias where U.S. investors will buy U.S. stocks, Austrian investors will buy Austrian stocks, New Zealand. So I think you're much better off hedging that by just like owning non-U.S. assets, which is probably a good idea anyway. So like sure, Bitcoin could do that, but I think I, I think that you're better off just building a sound portfolio rather than like having a kind of crappy portfolio with a lot of home country bias and then like trying to fix it later by adding uh, adding some Bitcoin like it's a food additive. The one, the one thing, and you had to get in that little jib at the end. Well done. Uh, <laughs> the the one thing I would like to add is just that humans are notoriously bad at predicting hard to predict events, or at least assigning a reasonable probability to them. And I think uh, Nassim Taleb makes that case better, you know, than anyone that I've heard in the Black Swan. And I think when you're trying to hedge, trying to pick assets that you know, another term of his are anti fragile. Versus trying to plan and think about probabilistically all the different scenarios in which your, you know, U.S. stocks and and bonds could go down, I think is going to have, you know, a much better, much better likelihood of performing well than trying to kind of engineer all this and, you know, th- think about all these unlikely things. Uh, last question for you, Alex, before we let you go, is now independent of, you know, crypto and crypto assets and if if they're necessarily any type of competitive threat to people using the U.S. dollar as a world reserve currency? Are you worried at all about kind of a either temporary kind of downturn in the markets and in faith in the U.S. dollar or anything you know long term? Yeah, it, it's a it's a really good question because I think I think that people take the U.S. dominant the U.S. dollar's dominance for granted, and I I don't know if worried is the right word, but I. I Definitely, like if you're looking at your investment goals over the next 50 years, I think you have to be prepared for a decrease in value in the U.S. dollar compared to other currencies, as like as as a pretty likely scenario. And that and that that's one of the situations where you know it's it's hard to predict events, and it's it's easy to assume that the future will be like the past. But like the U.S. dollars enjoyed this incredible dominance in a world where America was the clear leader on the world stage and the major trading partner for everyone. And all of those other things are changing, maybe permanently, maybe not, depending on your political perspective. But either way, I think to just assume that that in a world where the U.S. is saying, oh, no, we'll let other countries take care of it. Oh, we don't really want to trade with you, China. We don't really want to trade with you, Mexico. Like to assume that that world will continue, the, the, the dollar will continue to dominate in that world is is a bit is a bit silly and like since the dollar is so widely used that will probably drag down the value of the US dollar if, if that changes so so yeah i i i would say it's a definitely a concern that people need to be uh need to have in, in mind for a long investment horizon very last question Alex. which is better for the environment an inflationary currency or a deflationary currency well i think the to me, the biggest problem with the U.S. dollar is that it uses very little electricity. I think the more of the global energy supply a currency uses, uh, the better. That, that's my personal perspective. You have it here. Alex Rosenberg <laughs> loves Bitcoin. 
Uh, can we can we quote you on that, Alex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 pro. If your monetary system does not depend on me using electricity, it's a crappy system. I said it. You've heard it. You've heard it here, Alex. It was a real pleasure getting into this stuff with you. Hope to have you back on sometime, and looking forward to our next conversation, whether on over the podcast medium or in person. Yeah, thanks, guys. This was uh, this was a lot of fun uh, hashing out the, these issues. I think you know if we all just shake hands and uh, and and some harsh words were said back there, but but I think <laughs> we're all coming out the the wiser for it. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. These issues should be discussed more. Yeah, I agree with that because people do not. I mean, I, I will say just as as one little thing, like the fact that Bitcoin is making people think about the morality of inflation and deflation, even if even if people have a different view than me about inflation, like I think it's I think that's really great rather than just taking like an inflationary world for granted and taking the Fed for granted and saying, well, that's the world as it is, and and not thinking about how it it, it affects regular people, rich people, and anybody. I, I I think that is like a huge benefit of like the the rise of crypto that at least we're talking about these things yeah i totally agree yeah i'm happy you said that because both you know i think i i think jack and i can both largely attribute kind of the rise in crypto and our interest in it in order in in kind of better understanding these systems and kind of learning more and you know challenging and kind of changing our viewpoints uh alex and uh before i forget uh would you like to plug anything hell yeah uh so uh I work at Real Vision, so if you're not familiar, it's a financial media subscription site. So we have, for $180 a year, you can subscribe to our video product. You get a trade idea every day. You get a 60-minute interview every week, two 30-minute interviews, and a lot more stuff. A lot of big names. We just interviewed Stanley Druckenmiller. Uh, I was just out, actually, at at World CryptoCon uh, interviewing Tim Draper, where Mike Green actually talks about some of these issues with Tim Draper. So I would highly recommend people check out uh, realvision.com and, and grab a grab a 14-day trial if you, if you are so inclined. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you again, Alex, and look forward to speaking again soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun.